And now, uh, something of a strange text, let me be honest. Uh, Leviticus chapter 24, you'll see what I mean if you haven't read it already. We're in the midst of the holiness code, and then we have this, what I'm calling, and I got this from one of the commentaries, the blasphemer's tale. And then the, the holiness code resumes. So it's, it's, it's interesting, it's strange, uh, but it stands out and it makes a tremendous point, So I hope to show you. So Leviticus chapter 24, verses 10 through 23, hear the word of God. Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the children of Israel and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp and the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shilamith, the daughter of Dibri. The of the tribe of Dan. Then they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take outside the camp him who was cursed. Then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. And whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall excuse me, shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. <coughs> when he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so it shall be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for one from your own country. I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and they took outside the camp him who cursed and stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. And let us pray together. Uh, gracious Father in heaven. Uh, here is what I've called a strange text, but a wonderfully appropriate text. Uh, your, your wisdom is so far above ours. Uh, if it was us, we would just write your laws and move on, and we would miss uh, so much of uh, the stress and the emphasis that this, this incident brings out. Oh God, these things are written for our example, that we might not fall in the same way they fell. May we take these things to heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I've been trying to say, this is something it would seem out of place. We have the Holiness Code. In fact, we have the book of Leviticus. It's a book of laws. It's, 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 uh, or as I've been calling it, the Directory of Public Worship, the DPW, the Old Covenant. Uh, and, uh, and yet we have this, this narrative portion that enters in. Only I would argue, and I'm certainly not alone in saying that this narrative portion actually fills out the Holiness Code. In fact, it forms uh, a crucial portion of the code itself, it brings forward a new aspect of holiness. And that's something I've been saying week after week. Here's a new aspect. Here's a new aspect. Well, let me say it again. A new aspect found in these verses. If uh, in the, the, the passages uh, which preceded this, we saw uh, the importance of sacred space in the tabernacle and that there there was a need for a sacred people to occupy it, namely the priesthood and the nation consecrated unto God. And then following that last time, 
a sacred or, or sacred times, plural, for fellowship, hence the calendar in chapter 23 and the Sabbath in chapter 24, the first part, one thing was still missing. And what, what do you think that might be? I wonder, I wonder if it occurs to you as I ask the question, what's missing? Is there anything I haven't said? Well, the answer is God. God is missing. And in particular, uh, you know, notice I use the word sacred, sacred, sacred. Well, let me use the word sacred one more time. The sacred name of the Lord. The sacred name of the Lord. This is something actually uh, as a kind of refrain, refrain that occurs throughout uh, the holiness code uh, occurs over and over that you shall not profane the name of the Lord. I actually wrote out a list beginning in chapter 18. And I don't know, it's something like between six and ten times. You shall not profane the name of the Lord. The sacred name of God must be revered. It must be hallowed uh, among the people of God by which. It's a point I hope to make clear by which his presence was known and enjoyed among the people. God himself in his name. And so in all of that, a sacred space filled with the sacred people meeting on sacred times. What they needed was an object of their worship, and that was the name of God. Let me let me briefly recount the events here in what I'm calling uh, borrowing from others, the blasphemer's tale. There's this this fight that breaks out between. One of the children of Israel and then this man of mixed, uh, this man of mixed heritage. His mother was an Israelite. His father was an Egyptian. Remember, the Egypt, some of the Egyptians went uh, up with the Israelites in the Exodus. And so this sort of thing was inevitable. In the course of the fight, this is the most important piece of the narrative. In the course of the fight, which was bad enough, uh, the, man, uh, the, the, the man of mixed uh, descent blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. Verse 11. And then you have this this series of deliberations and ultimately judgment is rendered and uh, further laws are given to underscore. And the whole thing concludes with the whole of uh, the camp or the whole of Israel uh, stoning the man outside of the camp. That's that's basically it. It's a very simple tale. The tale of a man of mixed descent blaspheming the name of the Lord. And being condemned for his sin. And the Lord using this as an opportunity to clarify certain important aspects of his law. Uh, So I want to look at it, having done that, in terms of certain key principles or themes that we are able to observe from the text. Within the setting of the need for holiness. The most obvious being, if you notice, from the event and from what is said, when the law is uh, recounted here. Nothing new is given. God is just recounting his law. The first is the equity of God's law. And this is where sometimes, uh, I know you're surprised to hear me say this, but sometimes telling a story makes the point a little bit better. Uh, It's one thing to say a man of mixed descent, or or let me say it like this. It's one thing to say the law shall equally be applied. It's another thing to take a man who has a little bit of Israel in him and a little bit of Egypt in him and to realize that the law falls on him just as much as if he was pure-blooded Israelite. There is equity in God's law. It's the same law for both, the Israelite, the stranger, or even someone who's a little bit of both. Let Israel see this clearly. But what stands out uh, 
even more clearly than that in the course of the law, and these are the kind of things that raises the eyebrow of a Christian, especially in light of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, is what is called the principle of lex talionis, which is an extension of the equity of God's law, simply that uh, the punishment fits the crime. And, and to state it in a very uh, clear and emphatic way, God says, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and so on. The punishment uh, shall meet the crime. I, I, I can't think of anything more just than that. That is precisely the very definition of justice. It is not unjust for a man to be punished for his crime. That is the very definition of justice. And let the punishment be every bit as severe as the crime, but no more severe. I think that's a message that the modern ear needs to hear. We're far too lenient. And yet at times we're far too strict, aren't we? We don't understand justice. Well, this is what justice is. Lex talionis. But we ask the question very naturally. It's, it's, I, I wouldn't ridicule it in any, in any measure at all. We say, well, wait a second. Didn't Jesus say you've heard that it was said and then he quotes this passage, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I say to you, what about that? But as ever, what Jesus is doing there is, <coughs> excuse me. He is correcting a false interpretation of this law. Not only that, but then there's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and 13, pointing us in the same direction, that you are not to apply this, this, um, this principle individually. You're not to take justice into your own hands. That's Sermon on the Mount. That's Romans 12 and 13. You're to bear uh, crimes personally with meekness, you're not to take vengeance into your own hand. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And then that vengeance is executed. Paul goes on to say in chapter 13 through the state to whom he's given the sword. And so we should notice as we as we wish to apply this principle broadly within the context of Jesus teaching that it is not magistrates who are forbidden to live by this rule. In other words, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't overturning justice. If he was, what would you put in its place? He is not overturning justice. He is not forbidding magistrates, but he is forbidding individuals. And especially, if you think of the setting of the Sermon on the Mount, he's especially forbidding those to whom the kingdom of God belongs, his little ones, his disciples, to be full of a vengeful spirit. No, they are to be clothed, Jesus says, clothed in meekness and in faith, entrusting their lives to God. Again, it's the same message in Romans chapter 12. Here are people, Jesus is saying, and Paul is saying, who know how to live in a world full of offenses, and yet who can bear such thing in meekness. But as for governments and magistrates, who are ministers of God's justice in his stead, well, they had better apply this principle. For again, if they do not, what would they put in its place? As Paul says in Romans 13, God did not give the sword in vain to the civil authority. And they had better use it. They had better punish the evildoer. In this they proclaim God's own justice. Which he declares like this. Well, we already read it. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As a man has done, so it shall be done to him. 
You shall have the same law for the stranger and for one from your own country. I am the Lord your God. Now, here arises an interesting question. And it is once again the question of theonomy. Let me give to you uh, what Matthew Henry says. He says, magistrates are the guardians of both tables. Now, that's a very fascinating quote. uh, Because it would seem practically to me that magistrates are the guardians of the first table. uh, Or excuse me, the second table. And that the church more or less is the guardian of the first table. But here's Matthew Henry. Now, now, uh, all of you know how much I love Matthew Henry. Uh, But then... Uh, so, so I read that, it's very arresting, and then I'm aware of, of this as well. Men like Calvin, Bovin, Kuyper, uh, just to name a few, whom I read this week, say similar things. Now here's the question, it's the question of theonomy, but more narrowly. The question is this, should blasphemy be punished by the civil magistrate? Should blasphemy, let me put it even stronger, should it be a capital offense? What a fascinating question. It's the kind of thing you could debate for hours. Well, would you accept my answer? And my answer is that I don't know. I do not know. I am not prepared to answer. I'm prepared to study the issue. I'm prepared to discuss it. I am aware that the text itself raises the issue. The very men I read this week or this past week told me it did. One cannot read this text without being confronted with this very question. What of the blasphemer today? What do we do with him? What do we expect of the civil magistrate? To put it in historical terms, do we take Servetus along with Calvin and do we tie him to a stake and burn him? Is that, is that the kind of world you want to live? Maybe so. Maybe that's what you want. Oh, but I say be careful. Because you may be tied to that stake next. That is the lesson of history. And so that doesn't settle the question for me. (laughs) Yes, I see blasphemers burned in the age of the Reformation, but I also see many Protestants. I'm not sure that's what I want, but but I'm telling you I don't know. I'm merely bringing the question before you and confessing it is a very perplexing issue. Well, let me move on beyond that. What we have here is one of the cardinal threats to holiness. Now, that's something that I've said many times. The holiness code presents what holiness is, but it also presents the threats to holiness and therefore tells us to erect barriers to these threats. Remember what Paul says, and the Lord is effectively saying the same thing here, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Uh, How quickly we forget that. Just a little bit of sin can infect the holiness of an entire people, which is why the entire people joined in the judgment and the condemnation of the single sinner. And so if we look at this passage, we could state the threat in one of two ways, one of which is mixed marriages. Now, I don't mean racially, but I do mean religious mixed marriages. Now, that is something the Bible has been consistent about ever uh, since the beginning. The sons of God marrying the daughters of men. Uh, Speaking of mixed marriages, those who were religious and those who were irreligious. And uh, Matthew Henry makes a fascinating observation here. He says, why do you need to be careful? Well, because if you marry an unbeliever, you're taking this terrible chance that your child will follow in the steps of your unbelieving spouse. I know that what Paul says, I'm going beyond Henry now. Paul says, 
to that person who's already made that terrible choice. Don't worry, your children are holy, 1 Corinthians 7. All is not lost, but you still are in danger. It was a terrible choice. If you, if, well, if, if you haven't made it yet, you had better not make it. And so the point seems to be made over and over again in so many ways. Be careful whom you marry. There really is something worse than a life of singleness. And it's being married to an unbeliever. In fact, there's almost nothing worse than that from the standpoint of maintaining the standards of holiness. Because it isn't just you and your spouse, but then your children uh, who will make their contribution one way or the other. Uh, But then it isn't just that. It's also uh, the presence of a second threat of a mixed multitude, which was admittedly the case for Israel ever since the Exodus. The fact that they were a mixed multitude, some Israelites, some Some Egyptian. And this was, God is saying, a continual burden to her holiness. The fact that uh, irreligious were present, not just as a result of mixed marriages, but just as a result of the multitude who came out. On this point, Matthew Henry says the way to preserve the peace of the church is to preserve the purity of it. That the fight broke out because she was not pure. And so what does God say to preserve the purity or excuse me, the peace of the church? He says, defend the purity of it. You don't want to marry an unbeliever, nor do you want to bring unbelievers into the church. But let me notice here is the next point, the parallels with Leviticus 10. Now, do you remember what happened in Leviticus 10? That is the first of two narrative portions of Leviticus. And so this is the only other one in Leviticus 24. And that narrative portion like this was the recounting of something terrible. It was the death of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, when they brought strange fire or profane fire before the Lord. What I want to notice here is the parallel. And in both cases, what is being threatened by these men's literal sins uh, were dangers to the cultists of Israel. That is to say, just her worship. The worship of Israel administered through the priests in the tabernacle and then uh, set against the backdrop of sin. The need for holiness becomes clearer to us, doesn't it? Of course, the same thing happens in Exodus. You remember what happens after God gives the law from Sinai. We read of the incident of the golden calf. It's a sad testimony, but it's Israel's testimony. And let it not be ours that God gives the law. And that immediately they break it. And yet it just underscores how great her need for instruction was. But that isn't just what happened in Exodus or in Leviticus. The truth is, this is always happening in the life of the church. And so this is nothing new. The need for holiness always occurs in the church against the backdrop of sin. That's always the lesson we're supposed to learn. We see a man's downfall. We see ourselves falling into sin. The the, the lesson that's screaming to us is, Be holy even as I am holy. Turn from your sin, lest you perish in the way. But then there is also the more immediate setting within chapters 23 through 25. Now, why would the blasphemer's tale be told in the midst of those three chapters? Do you remember what those three chapters are about? Those three chapters are about... Uh, the calendar, the church calendar, uh, chapter 23, 1 through chapter 24, verse 9, and then again in chapter 25. And in between these two is the blasphemer's tale. 
also within the context more narrowly of chapter 24, you remember uh, what I called last time quoting Morales, uh, that, that picture, the showbread on the table before the lamps was an idealized Sabbath. They were to lay out the 12 loaves every Sabbath and the light of the Lord pictured on the candles was a picture of the glory of God shining upon the tribes of Israel on the Sabbath, an idealized Sabbath, the people of God basking in the presence of God's glory, enjoying it. How? Well, that's a question I'm going to answer. How were they to enjoy his glory? But again, there's always threats to this. There's threats to God's holiness, to his glory. There's threats to the Sabbath. The holiness of the church is always in danger. That never changes. And so these two things are set in contrast in this dramatic way. The idealized Sabbath and the blasphemer's tale. And when we take those two things together, what becomes clear to us? Well, what becomes clear to us, and this is without a doubt the key idea of the text, and I've already made this clear, but let me underline it again, is the importance of God's name. In particular, the importance of God's name to Israel's holiness and her worship. Set within the context of the Sabbath, the special day of worship. What was Israel to be preoccupied with? The name of God. Now let us examine this idea. We've seen that the name of God must be honored and not be profaned as a consistent emphasis of the holiness code. We also read it earlier as the third commandment. That, uh, for whatever reason, that tends to be the commandment everyone forgets. Shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Isn't that interesting to notice? Try to remember the blasphemer's tale next time you do that. But seeing it as a consistent emphasis of the holiness code and as one of the Ten Commandments, let us try to see it as the special aspect that hallowed Israel's worship on the Sabbath. Several aspects make this clear. One is how the name and the Sabbath are simply tied together by the events recorded in chapter 24. That's something we're meant to notice. Another is how both are spoken of in the same way. Now, I I could read these passages, Leviticus 22, verses 31 and 32, and then Exodus 31, verses 13 and 14. I'll just... Uh, I'll just tell you that in both cases, the Lord is saying, do not profane my name in one case and the other. Don't profane my Sabbaths. Placing them in the same category. But then we can look at the first table of the law, which we read earlier. And if we were to ask ourselves, what is the primary concern of the first table of God? Especially against the backdrop of Leviticus, we would have to answer that the worship of God is the preeminent concern of God in uh, the Ten Commandments. Not just you shall have no other gods before me and you shall not worship idols, the first two, but shall not blaspheme my name and you shall honor the Sabbath. And more and more as you go on with the Old Testament, you realize that all four of those must be taken together and they can never be taken in isolation. But then if you go to the passage that immediately follows the Ten Commandments, 
you see that the Lord, and he does the same thing in Deuteronomy. In fact, more strikingly in Deuteronomy, he says that the Lord did not appear to them in a form to be seen. And he attaches very great significance to this as a way to underscore the importance of the second commandment, forbidding images. And in particular, the making of an image and seeking to find God in the image. The use of images in worship. But against that idea of idolatry, God is saying, there's another way to find me. There's a better way to find me if you really want to know me. And that is the way he made himself known. Not a form for the eye to see, but simply by his own name. That is how he appeared to his people. Remember I said to underline, at least in your mind, Exodus 20, verse 24. Well, let me read 23 and 24. He says, you shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver, gods of gold, you shall not make for yourself. So there's the second commandment restated and underlined after giving the Ten Commandments. An altar of earth, he says, verse 24, you shall not make for me. You shall not sacrifice it on it. Your burnt offering and your peace offerings, you shall uh, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And the point that God is making here, and as I say, this comes out even clearer in Deuteronomy if if we ever get there, is that true worship is always spiritual. Sometimes we think that doesn't come out into the new covenant, but that is crystal clear even in the Old Testament. True worship is always spiritual. Why? Because God is a spirit. And if we wish to dwell in his presence, we can't find him in something made with hands. We can only find him after a spiritual fashion. And our apprehension of God, who is a spiritual being, does not come in a form that the eye can behold. Even though we're constantly seeking that, even today. Give me something that I can see. Even though scripture is always telling us that we walk by faith and not by sight. No, that is not how we apprehend who God is and adore his majesty. We apprehend who God is when we acknowledge his name, when we know his name. There where his name is known and confessed and adored, God says that he will come and he will dwell and he will bless. Every place where I put my name, every place where my name is acknowledged and adored, there I am. Do you want to know God? Do you want to dwell in his presence? Do you want to worship him? Do you want his blessing? Do you want to seek and to find him? Look for his name. Returning to the idea of the Sabbath. The essence of the Sabbath, which is preeminently the day of worship and communion with God, is the worship of his name, whereby we find God himself dwelling among us. And there is no thing that is more out of place on the Sabbath than profaning his name. Again, we ask, how is it that God makes himself known? How is it that he dwells among us on the Sabbath? The answer, as ever, is spiritually. And so God both forbids images and commends worship that is really spiritual. And this at the same time clarifies the essence of Sabbath itself, which is the worship of God's name. And the enjoying communion with him thereby. And thus, to tie everything together, 
The Sabbath is hallowed, the fourth commandment, when God's name is hallowed, the third commandment. And conversely, the Sabbath is profaned, the fourth commandment, when his name is profaned or taken in vain, or when we seek him by idols, rather in the way that he made himself known to us. And thus nothing served as a more striking contrast to the idealized Sabbath portrayed at the beginning of chapter 4, chapter 24, than the events recorded in the second half, the blasphemy of the name of God. Let me put this in a more practical form. Obviously, begin with this. Don't blaspheme the name of God. Don't profane it, but let me go beyond that. Understand what God's name is. Understand what it means. God's name is a revelation of who he is. Now, let me just remind you of what we've already seen in Exodus, for instance. This was what I would say is Moses' discovery. It wasn't so much what he saw in the burning bush, it's what God said. And that's what he recounted to the people. That's what he recounted to us even today. It isn't that we behold the burning bush. It's that we still hear the same words. I am who I am. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Go and tell the people that I am has sent you. And we saw how much uh, that, that phrase meant, that simple phrase, I am who I am. I, I won't re-preach the sermon here. How much God is saying about himself. Or in another place, God, Moses says to God, show me your glory. And God says, well, that's not something that you can behold with the eye, but it's something that you can comprehend with the ear. And so as he causes his glory to pass by, he declares that he is the Lord God who is full of compassion, who is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and yet who will by no means clear the guilty. And by this, Moses was beginning to comprehend who God is so that he might worship him. And so... Practically, I would say, see the worship, uh, see the essence, I mean, of worship as the lifting up of his name and praising him for his name, acknowledging him uh, for who he is. See that his name is always honored uh, among his people and never used lightly. Don't take it in vain. Don't ever use his name except to adore him. But to press the point even further, the name of Jesus is that very name. Of course, that's what offended the Jews so very much. But I would only say we're happy to offend them still. Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the most basic confession a Christian could ever make. And if it's a confession you're unable to make, well, then you're not a Christian. But if you're able to make it, well, then I say you are a Christian. For no man is able to utter these words except by the Holy Spirit. Whereas the unbelievers are still blaspheming, saying Jesus is accursed. Oh, but the Christian is like this. Through the Holy Spirit, he declares Jesus is Lord. And do you understand? Do you understand how difficult it is to say that? If you understand what it means to say the Lord, the name, the name above every name is the most honored and revered name. The name which the Lord uh, struck down a man just for uttering an irreverence to ascribe that name to Jesus Christ. And yet, there is no profession more basic than that to Christianity. 
And this is precisely what Paul says the last day will reveal about Jesus. And that the unbeliever, well, the believer first and then the unbeliever unwittingly, but nevertheless truly, will acknowledge about him that he possesses the name above every name. And what is that name? It is the name Lord Yahweh. I am who I am. In another place, Paul connects. He connects uh, our conversion with our confession. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ, God raised him from the dead. Confess it with your mouth. Paul says you will be saved for he, he later says, I think it's verse 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And what is the name of the Lord? It is Jesus. Confess Jesus with your mouth. Call upon his name and you will be saved. There is no other name, the apostle said in Acts chapter 4, in heaven or on earth by which men are saved than the name Jesus Christ. Oh, what blessing there is. What a privilege it is uh, to be able to say by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is Lord. Do you delight to say it? Along with me. And do you delight to say it on the Sabbath? On the day especially that he claims as his own. The essence of Christian worship uh, is as the hymn goes, may Jesus Christ be praised. That's it. It really is as simple as that. Our declaration and our adoration of who he is and our determination thereby to listen to every word that he said and to follow him. And to acknowledge that there is indeed no other name in heaven or, or on earth by which men are saved. Is the picture becoming clear to you? Do you see the importance of the name? Do you see that everything depends upon it that concerns your soul? Your ability to worship God. Your ability to draw near to him and to be saved. It all depends on the name. But what of those who blaspheme the name still? And I mean the name of Jesus. Those who will not say Jesus is Lord. Do they not see in this passage a picture of their own fate? The woe that awaits the blasphemer. Jesus says you will give an account for every idle word. That's another passage we conveniently forget at times. Every idle word. Every one. And do men not realize that when they speak of God harshly or lightly that he is listening. And not only that but that he is writing down every word in his ledger. For which we must all give an account. Oh it is a terrible thing the writer to the Hebrews says. To fall into the hands of the living God experiencing his wrath. Look at this picture here. Do you think that the stoning of this man was terrible? I tell you, it's but a drop of rain compared to the vast ocean of eternity in which God is ever pouring out his wrath on the sinner, the blasphemer, the man who refused to say Jesus is Lord. Can we not look upon the condemned sinner as Israel did that day and not hear the voice of God crying along with our conscience? Turn, O sinner, and be saved, lest you too suffer the same fate. And yet, when we see the marks on this man's body, this man's body, stoned to death at the hands of his brothers, do we not at the same time see Jesus himself, upon whom the wrath of God also fell, wounding and bruising and crushing his body, just like this man? 
As Bonar says, the wrath is real in both cases, but the reason is very different. One man died for his sin, deservedly. Another man died for the sins of others. Can you appreciate what I'm saying? And can you understand how both points are coming through loud and clear in the book of Leviticus? If there's any lesson to be learned from this book, it's that God will by no means clear the sinner. And remember, that's part of who he is. It's part of his name. It's part of what we adore about him. It's his glory. Oh, the sinner must either bear his own guilt or else another. It will either rest on his own head, as in the case of this man, to his own ruin, or else it will rest on the blessed head of Jesus. And to think of what he suffered for sinners, Jesus, and yet they blaspheme his name still. Is there any injustice that God should condemn them? Those who will not look upon him whom they have pierced and cry out and mourn and seek salvation in him. But you, as you look upon him bruised, pierced, his body broken, can you not say that the name of Jesus is blessed? The name above all names, Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. Amen. And let us, let us return now our praise to God by standing together and singing hymn 374. Hymn 374.